Hello and welcome to Humans Who Make Games. I'm Adam Conover. We are back with Season 2, a whole new season full of interviews with the people who made some of your favorite games, talking about their, their life growing up, how they got into the industry, their favorite video games, their favorite video game memories, and what it's like working in the trenches of this century's greatest new art form. So look, I want to jump right into it. Our first episode is a very, very special one. Uh, It actually has two guests. We recorded this one live at the Just for Laughs Comedy Festival in Montreal. And my guests are Ron Funches, who's an incredibly funny comic. If you like comedy, you know Ron Funches. And he's also a huge game player, plays everything under the sun, has an encyclopedic, an encyclopedic, an encyclopedic, how do you pronounce it? I don't know. Uh, He's got a memory like an encyclopedia for video games. Um, And we have, as our guest, Jean Guedon. Now, look, on this show, we've had a lot of indie game developers because they're, you know, hey, they're a little easier to book because they're only one person. They usually don't have a big PR department breathing down their neck. But I have been so curious about what it is like to work in AAA. And Jean is the perfect person to dive into that for us because this man has run the Assassin's Creed franchise for many years. And his time at Ubisoft Montreal dates all the way back to Assassin's Creed II, the ultra-classic that put the franchise on the map and defined the next decade in game. So he's an incredibly fascinating guest to have on the show. Ron's incredibly funny. I think you're going to love this episode. Let's just jump right into it. Hi, everybody. Hello. Hello. How's everybody doing today? Uh, Welcome to our live podcast of Humans Who Make Games here at Montreal Just for Last Festival. Are you guys excited for the podcast today? (laughs) Wonderful. Wonderful. This is a comedy festival that we're at, but we're going to change gears. I've been doing nothing but comedy all weekend. I've been doing show after show after show, but now I would like to think about video games for five minutes instead. for those of you to just relax or take a little breather and think about some pixels. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with this show, uh, I started it because uh, I wanted to learn more about the people who actually make video games. Um, and we're very lucky to uh, be here in Montreal where there's a lot of incredible video game development being done. We've got a really great guest uh, who's going to come up and tell us about their incredible work. But first, uh, because we were at a comedy festival, I want to introduce one of my va- very favorite comics who plays maybe more video games than any other comedian I know. Uh, if you are a comedy fan, you already know him. Uh, if not, you're going to love him. Please give it up for Ron Funches, everybody. Ron Funches, come up here. Funches, Funches. Come on up. Come on up. How's it going? Take a seat wherever you like. Great. Thanks for being here. We've got these hovering mics. Get it close I up to the face. I hate them. <laughs> you hate it? You can take it out if you want. I will. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, actually, I might do Difficult. that too. because it's, it's in the way. I want to look right into your baby eyes. Um, That's gross. How's it? <laughs> 
How's it going? Okay, here we are. We're having a <laughs> we're having a nice chat. Uh, you been having a good festival? It's been I've good been for having you? a wonderful festival. I've been having a blast. It's the first time I've been here and not felt terrified. Yeah, this is my first time here, and I have been a little terrified the whole time. It's, it's terrifying. It's kind of everyone tells you it's a big deal, but then you, you get here it. and you're like, I'm just in some hotel rooms. Yeah, it's not so bad. <laughs> well, let's talk about video games. Have you uh, been playing anything in your hotel room while you're here? Did you did you bring a switch along or anything perchance? I brought a switch and I brought my PlayStation Pro. You're oh you're one of those guys who brings it in the carry on. Yeah, I have I have a home one and I have a one that I just travel with. Oh, for real? <laughs> wow. Do you thank you, money? <laughs> You're the kind of guy, sometimes they send you a free console, don't they? Uh, Microsoft does, because they'll do that to just about anybody. They haven't done it to me. Well, they've been, they, they kind of realized they lost this round. Yeah. They've, they've stopped giving away. <laughs> <laughs> Cut but their I'm losses. For next one, next one. Uh, what are you playing on your PlayStation in the hotel room? Um, I haven't played anything in the hotel room because the TV's too close to the wall, which is my least favorite thing in a hotel yeah. room is when you can't fucking... They should have, just for comics, they should have HDMI cables coming down so you can plug your shit in. You got to. It's ridiculous because we travel so much. One yeah. of the reasons I bring my PlayStation, not the, just because I'm usually playing games, because it, my PlayStation is always home at own at my home and so mm -hmm. it makes me feel at home when i go home and and my netflix yeah is up or i have a game in the background it just makes me feel like less lonely and I'm right. on the road um and so i hate it sometimes i was in san antonio having shitty horrible gigs and their tv was attached to the wall so i just <laughs> went to target and bought a tv and <laughs> You're hardcore. Oh, but I returned it. I returned <laughs> it. <laughs> Everyone is on board with this slight bit of quasi-thievery. <laughs> uh, great. What were you playing in San Antonio? Oh, that was a bit ago. I'll tell you what I'm playing Okay, what now. are you playing what now? Playing what are you playing now? now? Is, um, oh, I don't want anyone to get into it. Um, I was playing Days Gone, which everybody told me was horrible. Okay. Everybody was like, it's bad, it's a zombie game that doesn't add anything new to it. Um, but I'm from Oregon, and the game is set in Oregon. Oh, okay. The studio's from Oregon, and so I was like, oh, it's got all these vistas and stuff I'm used to. It deals a little bit. I just pretend that they're not even zombies. It's just like the meth epidemic reached its natural conclusion. <laughs> and I was playing it. I was loving it and enjoying it. And then I got to this bug where this boss won't appear. And now I, I don't even think I could progress anymore. Oh, that's the worst. It is. So now I'm like, yeah, it's a shitty game. Yeah. That really sucks. That's the most frustrating thing. In it's any so game. frustrating because I was getting ready to put it because, you know, nobody cares, but I'm always like, is this going to make my top 10 games of the year? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, ooh, people going to be real shocked that Days Gone's on my list. <laughs> but now I can't make it because I don't put any game on my list I don't beat. So. Oh, you? Oh, seriously? Because mm -hmm. I, okay, because I will completely forgive myself for not beating a game. I don't feel a compulsion to beat a game. Like there's so many games where I've played like half of them. Like, uh, I don't know, like the, like the new Doom, like the 2016 mm -hmm. Doom. I yeah. love that game. I played so much of it. I consider myself to have played it, but I only played like half of it because I got through it and I was like, okay, I've done it. I, I feel like I've, I've experienced the game. I've fought all the different types of enemies. Now there's just some more bosses, had enough. But you, you feel like you really have to beat it. 
I feel like it'd be to put it on my list. I was the same thing. I mean, I think Doom was a similar thing where I was like, ooh, it's so good, but I didn't beat it. So mm-hmm. I'm not gonna put it on my list. Got it. It's just how, how I roll. I'm a completionist. What's your <laughs> what's your uh, what's your first memory of video games from when you were a kid? What's the first game you remember oh, playing? The first game I remember seeing was Pong. Really? That was the first game I remember seeing and going over to my like uncle's house and I probably was like three, four years old. Yeah. And seeing the little dials and just the beeps and the boobs. Yeah. My grandparents had a copy of Pong at their like cabin and it was always like it barely worked. Like the TV was shitty and it was hard to plug in and stuff. Shaky. So it was like a mystical object to me. Yeah. Like magical. how do I get this thing? Yeah. Yeah. And it was to everybody that when it came out, people were buying it just because, like, you can make a picture on the screen and control it with a dial. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> and that's one of my first memory, and then it's just been on ever since. I got an uh, NES, and then just been in the game ever since. Was a Nintendo boy for a little bit, but then I got Sega Genesis, so I was a Sega guy. For uh, Sega Genesis, Saturn, Dreamcast, um, and then now I'm just... Now I've reached a point as an adult that I can buy whatever. <laughs> so I yeah. like, I'm like, all systems must be mine. <laughs> yeah. And it's the best because my son is like 16 and he, he loves games. But my favorite part about him loving games is he's not like one of these kids who's like a graphic snob or like is like, oh, I don't mm-hmm. get why you would play this. He loves everything. That's wonderful. He loves like Rally X. He loves like root beer tapper he loves everything that's great and i'm like man you're my son that's wonderful do you uh are the, do you like show him games that you used to play as a kid I, like i don't want to have kids personally that's or at least I, the, the only time at which i feel that i want to have kids is i'm like i think it would be nice to play a video game that i used to play as a kid with a kid it is <laughs> doesn't it feel good oh me and my son went through metal metal slug together oh yeah and it was just like i was because i was just i had repurchased it myself and my son came home from school and he was just like daddy likes metal slug <laughs> <laughs> and i was like yeah i was like you like metal slug and he's like yeah and i was like well fuck homework we know <laughs> 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 oh man see i love my dad but i wish my dad had done that shit that would be incredible <laughs> it's great we love it it's been it's a way to bond now I mean, every usually because i'm on the road so much yeah um every time i come home i usually come home on sunday and then we go to uh, this place called game realms in burbank or oh okay ga- i love game realms in burbank that place is great or we go to game dude or we go to um if there's a convention going on we just try to find something where um we're buying some old games every Sunday. Yeah, I saw you at uh, the Retro Game Expo Fair or whatever in uh, in L.A. just buying some retro stuff in that big warehouse. That place was awesome. Yeah, and you were buying Famicom games, and it made me feel like I wasn't enough of a nerd because I didn't have <laughs> any Japanese systems, and so I bought an analog because of you. Oh, yeah, yeah. the analog NT that lets yeah. you play old cartridges on HDMI. Yeah, I, I was in that place. This is like a huge retro gaming fair that had tons of sellers and they were selling so many games that like I had heard about or like read in Nintendo Power when I was like eight and then never saw in person and it was like this weird portal to like a secret shop of of wonders it was a really cool experience oh it's the main reason I want to go to Japan I'm going to Japan this this winter and it's mostly just to like 
buy old Sega Saturn games for a decent price. <laughs> yeah, you'll go, you'll go nuts there. I went when I was there. I went to a couple shops that would have like, um, like seeing the box of a Final Fantasy game, but it has the Japanese art was like. There was something stunning about it. Like I had gone through a portal of some kind. Japanese like, is always cooler. Yeah. Always. <laughs> well, yeah, because that's like the part that as kids we only heard about or didn't really have access to. You know what I mean? Yeah. We were like, oh, you know, this is Final Fantasy three for us. But they already. <laughs> what does others? <laughs> what are you playing on your Switch? Right now I'm playing this game called Streets of Rogue. Uh, I've never heard of this. It is. I thought it would be like Streets of Rage. It is not. <laughs> okay. It's mostly rogue-based. It's just a lot of fun, different characters. It's just something that I'm playing in between games. I'm playing a little yeah. bit of Mario Maker as well. Mm -hmm. uh, Baba is You, so playing that. Baba is You is incredible. Yeah, it's really fun, but then it makes me angry. Yeah. Because I'm like, oh, I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the hardest puzzle games I've ever played, and I play a lot of puzzle games. It was very hard, but it's fun. I like being the bunny. <laughs> <laughs> do you feel uh, a question I always have for people who play as much games as we do is do you feel like you always are getting out of it what you want to get out of it or do you feel that sometimes like sometimes on the road I feel like I'm playing obsessively when I'd rather be doing something else like I've been playing Slay the Spire mm -hmm. and I just cannot put it down sometimes and I almost wish I could and I feel like oh wait I'm, this is not actually a good feeling what I'm doing I'm there's, I'm getting something sort of negative out of it. Do you ever have that? Ooh, I do have that sometimes. That's fun to think about. Thank you for bringing that up. Th I, thank you, Ron. This, this is what you want to hear as a host, is positive affirmation, so. Happy to. <laughs> well, yeah, it was the same thing, because you know, I like, I'm a nerd about a few different things. I love pro wrestling a lot as well, and I found mm -hmm. myself getting real deep into pro wrestling, going to a lot of events, helping promote a lot of their events. And then I was like, oh yeah, I don't work here. I don't get any money for this. <laughs> <laughs> and I got an argument with a couple wrestlers. I was like, I'm too invested. You yeah. Know? At some point, it's just it's like, I need to be mostly focused on me and making sure I'm promoting what I'm about. Right. And so it has pulled back a little bit less, less wrestling, a little bit less video game playing, and more um, making sure I'm only playing games that I want to play. Not that's, that's the issue is there's sometimes that I'm like, I'm playing a game, like, I don't. I'm not enjoying this, so why yeah. am I why am I playing it? It's oh, just like the entire WWE 2K series. <laughs> what about those games? Is oh, don't get me started. Can you Please. start for just a short amount I of time? I would love to because this is probably the only this is the ones where they might listen to it. <laughs> so I just wanna say who and I'm sure the developers are doing what they can. The publisher's always on that yearly cycle that yeah. ruins creativity. But we've been playing the same damn wrestling game for like 15 years on the same goddamn engine. It's not fair. Is they take something because they know like people love it. They're like, we don't have to put any effort into this. And it's just like the NBA 2K series used to be bad too, but they put so much effort and they made it a game that even non-basketball fans would want to play. They made it like yeah. a role-playing game that was just fun to play. Yeah. Like if they can do that for basketball, why can't they do that for the sport that I love, the sport of kings, professional <laughs> wrestling? <laughs> okay, if you're listening, 2K, the 2K people, Make, upgrade the engine. Make upgrade that engine or just go back to how you used to do the No Mercy series. <laughs> that's, always, that's always frustrating when it's like you don't see. Well, it's weird because what we want as 
players is you kind of want the same thing, but you also want it to be different, you know? Like, I remember when it was starting to feel like every Zelda game was the same game over and over again. I never played Skyward Sword because I was like, I get it, the hook shot. I'm going to get a hook shot, you know? I've done it. I've been there. It doesn't look different. And then Breath of the Wild was just different enough that everybody, it, it captured some soul of the original, but it yeah, felt... Yeah, it's, it's my top three in my Zeldas for sure. And you beat it. I did. You oh. know I beat it. <laughs> Yeah. Some people don't beat that game. They wait. I literally have talked to uh, my friend John has played like 100 hours that game and has not fought Ganon because he wants he to wants do to everything live in else. The world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like he has problems in his real life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I know, but I think I think maybe he does. <laughs> well, let me come back to that point because sometimes I, I feel that like video games sometimes we use them to compensate for problems in our real life. Like Absolutely. I think a lot of games offer like games that offer like a to do list, you know, like a Skyrim, here's your million missions, you know? And then you get to feel accomplishment, right? In that clean and easy way. I did a quest, I did something, and that's harder to find in the real world. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes that's why we go into video games. And sometimes there's like a weird relationship between you know what I mean? But then other games, like a Dark Souls game, you hear people take out of that, oh, I learned that I could overcome great odds, and mm -hmm. I took that into my real life, and it made me stronger in my real life. Yeah, like but, in Cuphead, and I was like, I can, I learned how much I could curse. <laughs> right. I learned new curse words. Right. But it's it's just anyone who like really loves video games for a long time knows there's always a time period where. Um, or anything that helps you with escapism, anything where the TV shows, comedy, video yeah. games, whatever, um, sometimes they come into your life when you really need them, you know? Sometimes when you're really down and you're low and you're in the real world isn't that fun for you and that's okay to go into another place for a little bit. But then you gotta come back out and be like, okay, I refresh myself, how the fuck can I make my, how can I be the hero in my real life? How yeah. Can, how can I be Link in my real life? Yeah. And that's like the best thing that a game can do for you. And you can't really blame it on the game one way or another, whether you go in that direction or whether you just use it to replace your real oh, life. Oh, unless it's it about has you. loot boxes and it's trying to steal your fucking money. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> okay, well, let's, uh, I'd like to bring on our uh, next guest. Will you stick around and hang out and chat with him for us? Oh, yeah, sit, sit over there. Ooh, it's just like a talk show. Yeah, you take a seat over. All right, well, I'd like to introduce uh, our guest. I'm super excited to have him uh, because previously on this podcast, I've had a lot of folks who work in indie games, a lot of small one-person, two-person shops, um, but I've really been wanting to talk to someone who works in AAA on big, big, wonderful games, and um, so I'm so excited to have this guy here. Uh, he has worked on many, many of the Assassin's Creed games in various capacities at Ubisoft. He's gonna tell us all about it. Please give it up for Jean Gadon, everybody. Is he over here? There he is, oh, I'm sorry. Thanks for coming in. Take a seat, take a seat. Yeah. Thank you Hello. so much for being here. Thank you. Thank it's you extremely you. lucky that uh, the biggest comedy festival in the world is also held at a place where people make video games. Isn't it? Yeah, mm -hmm. so we could do this. Have you ever been to this festival before? Just for rire, en français. In French. <laughs> I thought the interview would be in French. No, I'm sorry, I speak absolutely no French. So it's going to have to I be. I don't speak it, but now I'm in love guys. with you. 
So, uh, so let's let's start at the beginning. Well, you you now you work at Ubisoft. Yes. You have been the creative director of the Assassin's Creed games. You've directed you directed uh, Black Flag. Black Flag. Um, you worked on all the way back from the first one, right? Mm -hmm. From and you worked on uh, uh, all except for Odyssey, right? You worked on all of them except Correct. for Odyssey. But let's start at the beginning. What's your what's your first memory of video games? Uh, it's uh, it's uh, an old memory already. I think the first, very very first one was Pong. Again, Pong. Pong. Ron yeah. also played Pong. Mm -hmm. Do you it, guys uh, ever? It betrays uh, my uh, my age a bit. <laughs> I guess. I wish we had a copy of Pong here. You could play Pong against each other. That would be nice. <laughs> but the the very first uh, emotionally um, important for me uh, was uh, Dark Castle on Macintosh. I played this Remember game. This one? It was kind of an old ancestor of uh, Prince of Persia. Yeah, a platformer where would you you would uh, shoot bats and uh, rats. Yeah, and uh, there were uh, three noises, you know, three follies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, and at the end there was this uh, big metallic uh, knight that you would uh, defeat. Yeah, yeah. That was an adventure already, all in the black and white on a screen big like that. The black and white one-bit graphics were so evocative, and mm -hmm. it's nice because a couple games are starting to use that again. Like, um, oh, what's the name of the of the mystery game on the ship? I'm blanking on the name. Oberdin. Oberdin. Yeah, thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, we got it. Yeah, I knew this crowd would <laughs> supply the answer immediately. Yeah, that had that wonderful one-bit Return to the Oberdin. That wonderful game had had that wonderful style. There's something about those very simple graphics that were so evocative. What about that game emotionally captured you? Uh, like I said, it was the adventure. I mean, you would start uh, at the beginning of the castle. There were the three or four doors. Mm -hmm. And so what was behind the doors, you know? And so you, you had first to, uh, to, to do the first two ones in order to get keys to, to access to the last one. And so there was this surprise of each level being different, being challenging uh, differently. And you would find orbs. There was a magical thing around also. Yeah. There was games that were so, there was like a real sense of mystery, like I really felt like a world that you were, existed apart from you that were, you were trying to yeah, explore. Th there was no, uh, I mean, there was no dialogue, no nothing. It was yeah. just ambient sound, if I recollect correctly. Yeah, that was cool. Did you continue to play games throughout the rest of your life? Did you have a gap at all? I did have a big gap, yes, actually, because my, so my father had some uh, computers like that a bit, so I played a bit at home, but we, we didn't have any console, really. Mm. Then I went, you know, uh, to university, etc. And so uh, I had no PC on my uh, of my own. You had no PC stage. of your own. No, 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 not yet. I mean, it was early nineties. Okay. And so some friends of mine had some, and uh, with them I could play. Um, I remember playing Dune, mm -hmm. the RTS one, mm. where uh, I started around nine p.m. and then uh, at some point I said, "Oh, I should take a break and look at the, you know, <laughs> look at the clock," and it was four a.m. Right. I was like, oh, geez, okay. <laughs> These games can do that kind of stuff, you know? And, uh, and then Doom, obviously. Mm -hmm. Doom Dune and, and Doom. Dune, Dune, yes. Dune and Doom, yes. Dune, Dune, the, Dune and Doom. Okay, Dune I got it. Dune and Doom, yes. <laughs> All right, I just want to make sure. Um, Dune and Doom? Dune and, Dune and Doom. Got it. Dune and Doom. <laughs> very different games. Very, <laughs> very, very similar names. Games. Yes. Uh, well, how did you, how did you then make your way to Ubisoft? Oh, it's a long story, actually. I, I wasn't planning to work in video games yeah. at all, and so, but I, I came here in Montreal in '97, 
And um, I'm a designer in the first place. I, I studied, you know, in, uh, into industrial design, mechanical engineering, oh, okay. things like that. So I, I always uh, uh, like to create things. So even when I was a kid, as a kid, you know, I was playing with my Legos and I was adding stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so building some other stuff to add to the blocks. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so I studied onto that and to design and conception, you know, methodology, etc. And uh, here in Montreal, I started to work for Megablocks, who's the comp main competitor of Lego, actually. Okay. And so for six years, I made construction toys. Oh, wow. And this is also so very cool. I don't know if you want to launch a podcast, you know, who humans who make uh, toys. <laughs> that uh, sounds But that, that sounds would be great. super interesting also. And so, um, so into that uh, company, I... I Evolved from a uh, designer, so industrial designer, lead design, project manager. And in 2005, I, I wanted something new, you know, new challenge, etc. And so I moved to UB because uh -huh. Ubisoft here was growing a lot. And they were looking for managers that were used to creative environments. Mm -hmm. So you're not doing the same fridge every year, mm -hmm. just changing the facade, you know. It's, I mean, it's something, making games uh, and making creative uh, content is something quite uh, special. Yeah. And so this is how, actually, I made the, the, the shift from uh, traditional industry to, to video games. And so I joined Ubisoft uh, fall 2005. Wow. That's as as a more on the project management side, basically. That's really fascinating because uh, I feel that the, you know, the more traditional path would be to, oh, I played video games, I started programming my own or et cetera, maybe taking computer science courses, that sort of thing. Um, but that's really interesting that you can do it from a sort of tangential but related field. How is, I'm so curious, what is the process when you're designing a toy um, and you're trying to think, okay, how is someone going to play with this toy? What are the considerations that you have there and how is that similar or different to designing a video game? Well, that's what I like about being a designer. It's like you really put your creativity at the service of some, somebody else, mm -hmm. you know, uh, of another person. And so you need to uh, fully understand the needs of all the, the, the people involved, from the marketing of the company, the salesman, the, 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 the people that will actually make the thing, and obviously the final user. And so, like I was saying, I mean, uh, doing toys, I wasn't uh, a kid myself, but I need to understand <laughs> Yeah, uh, how kids play, uh, their limitation, their their dreams, what they want to to do with that, and so when I joined Ubisoft more on the management side, and then I asked them basically to go back to the design side of the force, and when they they, they said, well, but you're not a huge gamer, you know, you're yeah. not coming from that actually uh, culture, I say, okay, but I'm a designer. And yeah. so the same way I, I wouldn't, uh, I, I didn't have six years of mental age, you know, when I was doing toys, the same, uh, it's, a, it's just about understanding the needs and yeah. then putting your creativity at the service of it. And so that's what I did. That's, that's really cool. It, it reminds me a little bit of doing comedy or television where I'm always trying to imagine myself in the role of the person watching, either sitting in the crowd like these mm -hmm. folks are, and hopefully having a good time, and <laughs> um, or watching at home, right? And, and just what is that overall experience that they're having? You're like trying trying to picture how the user is is going to experience it, putting yourself in their place. Is that sort of what you're talking about? Exactly. I mean, you you first wh when you want to design to create something, it's for somebody else. Otherwise, you do art. For me, this is the clear definition between the two. 
there are some art involved into making uh, video games or uh, even industrial design, but you're making something for, for another person. And so this is why you first, you need to put yourself in, into their shoes to, um, to think about what you're doing from this perspective, from the user perspective, and then do what what is uh, needed so that user actually enjoy the experience, like you were saying. What what wasn't the same between the two? Like when you went into designing video games, what was the hardest adjustment that you made coming from? Because you were doing physical design, correct? Right? You yeah. were you were just literally designing the physical toys. Yes. So what was that? Must have been a leap. Oh, there, there is a big leap. Yeah, I had to learn a lot. <laughs> Um, because the, the overall, I would say, methodology and process is the same, but the, the, the raw material and the final product has nothing to be compared. Uh, I mean, they're, they're not comparable. So for me, it was the dematerialization, actually, of the, of the... I mean, it's not real. It's, it's <laughs> it doesn't exist physically in the world. Well, that's so funny that you say that, and I, I hate to interrupt, but it's so funny that you say that because the Assassin's Creed games are some of the most physically, architecturally constructed games. I mean, they're, you know, they're, the environments are very lush, but also they're like very physical. They're, they're extruded, yes. they're designed to, to match real places and to feel like real places. Absolutely, and I think this is why this franchise uh, hooked me so much in the first place when I joined it back in two, 2006. Wow. So, so I joined the, the Assassin's Creed team for the last year of production of the first game. And this is exactly what you're just describing that actually made me very into it. Because, I mean, you could feel the weight of Altair jumping around, you know, rolling on the ground. There was this uh, sense of, of gravity almost, you know, the, of inertia yeah. when he was jumping. And there was no lasers everywhere, you know. <laughs> uh, so it it's really um, uh, grounded. Yeah. Uh, and also, uh, I'm a huge history buff also. So yeah. So these two elements were, I mean, it, this was the perfect franchise for me to work on. Yeah, that is, you know, I went back and played, in preparation for this, played Assassin's Creed. I played the first uh, five hours of Assassin's Creed 2, and it very much, you feel almost a lot of the time clumsy, like in that, or, well, you're very acrobatic, but it's so physical that you find yourself stumbling off of things or running into people, and, and it's like very very modeled like that. And so when you're climbing a tall thing, you really do get that sense of, I'm climbing it. I'm climbing it for real. Can I say that? Yeah, sure. I don't Please. mean to rub, but can I say that's one of my favorite things about the game is just running into other passerbys and just shoving people out of the way. <laughs> yeah. It really helps me get out a lot of aggression. <laughs> so thank you. That's good. You. So happy that you can do that, at least in these worlds. Yeah. I know? spent like <laughs> half an hour just walking around. There's a gentle push button. Yeah. And I spent half an hour just gently pushing. Push people out of the way. I've never... I, like, and then if they say something back, out comes your dagger. <laughs> <laughs> it's wild. Let's talk about what you did on the first two Assassin's Creed games. Like, what was... Because what I'm very curious about is these games are made by massive teams, right? Like, how many people worked on... Oh, it evolved a lot, actually. So Assassin's Creed 1, we were the big team. 
uh, back in the days, and it, we were 150. Wow. And it was like, wow, we're in the big project. You know, this is a massive, uh, massive endeavor. And endeavor. And, um, and so this was perfect for me because I actually learned how to uh, work. And how does the, uh, a big project like that was working? And then it, it uh, uh, grew up. How do you say that? It, it, uh, I mean, teams and large mm -hmm. got bigger and bigger and bigger through the years. Now, now it's stabilized. Uh, but Origins, the, the, the last one I made uh, was around 700, wow. 800, all around the world. So, um, yeah, it definitely evolved based on the needs, on the technology, etc. Yeah. But um, it's, uh, it's interesting because the first one were really about defining the franchise, mm -hmm. um, the IP, and the, the, what are the main uh, components that really make an Assassin's Creed game an Assassin's Creed game. Yeah. Um, first one was uh, we, we had a lot to add. Clearly, I mean it was a it was a really um, first uh, a really nice first try. I mean the game was gorgeous. The freedom of the parkour uh, we just uh, we were talking about uh, was never experienced before. So this feeling was really really interesting. But we we actually needed the second one to to finish the entire ambition of uh, what, uh, what and this And that's was. the one that's the classic, is mm -hmm. the, that's the one that Absolutely, people remember yes. so yeah. well. Uh, Ron, did, uh, did you play Assassin's Creed 2 when it came out? I did oh, not. Oh, absolutely. Yeah? And it. what was your experience of it? I just like, um, again, like you said, just the freedom of traveling around. I love, I love um, dealing with figures of the history and then just having fun adventures with them <laughs> my favorite part. You like being buddies with Leonardo da Vinci? Leonardo, I yes. definitely, yeah. I definitely love being buddies with him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and the first one was, yeah, it was very fun and enjoyable, but you could, you could feel it. It was like, this is a good first draft. It was a little bare bones. And when that second one came out, it was like such a leap. It, to me, it was a similar leap from like, Super Mario World, Super, regular Super Mario Brothers, which is a great game, but then you see the um, the structure and the leap that you see in Super Mario Three. Yeah, that's how I kind of relate the two. Yeah, where that Super Mario Three is like a perfect game that feels still modern today, and so does Assassin's Creed Two. I mean, it, it's like you know, there's a little bit. Okay, you can see where the where it's ten, ten years old now. Yeah, can you believe that? Yeah, two thousand nine. We were exactly at this time uh, producing uh, finishing. Assassin's wow. Creed 2. Yeah. But, you know, I played it on modern hardware, and it sort of up a lot of it, you know. But with the, you could see, okay, low-res textures and things like that. But the animation, the freedom of movement, like so much of it felt so, felt so modern. Um, so what, what was your role on Assassin's Creed 2, and what was your day-to-day -day like as part of that big team? So on Assassin's Creed 2, I, um, this is the time I managed to uh, go back to the design. And so I was game designer on, uh, on Assassin's Creed 2. And the first year, basically, this project took us two years after the, the launch of the first one. And I think one thing that we did great was to be honest. Uh, you were mentioning the limitations of AC1. Um, and so we've been um, honest with us about that and uh, clearly identifying what needed to be worked on more. So, namely, the game structure. Um, uh, adding some more variety on the content, you know, missions, uh, quests, etc., so that to break this repetitivity of the that the the first one uh, was having, and and then so as a game designer uh, during the first year, I had the opportunity to almost de-risk a lot of the main system, and by de-risking I mean 
uh, in three to four weeks on each topic, being able to clearly uh, set the direction for each. So economic system, this was new. Uh, there was no economic system on AC1. Uh, revamping the game structure, so with the, uh, you know, the DNA sequences and the memories mm. and all this. Um, talking also about the detection loop. Once you are seen, you know, uh, being notorious, how do you come back to incognito, the, this kind of stuff? Yeah. And then during the second year, the team uh, um, was, um, uh, you say that, was, uh, I mean, we, we had uh, additional resources mm -hmm. to help us finish the game. And so I was more uh, precisely in charge of the menus and the HUD, so the, the interface. Yeah. And the menus of the game. So when you're designing something like, okay, the detection loop, mm -hmm. right, which is clearly a core part of the game, what does that design process look like? You, literally, you know, day to day, what's, what is the team like? You know, because that's, that's, the, that's the core of the game to us, the player, yeah. right? Yes. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm just so curious how that like how that comes out creatively. Are you just sitting sitting at yeah. meetings with whiteboards? What are you doing? Do you guys play hide and seek? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yes. Really? Uh, well, yes. <laughs> at some point, we, we add that to, to because, okay, first, it, the, the goal is to always to establish the needs, right? So what, what do we want to achieve? Mm -hmm. Why do we want that? And uh, how do we want uh, it to uh, be to be experienced? I mean, uh, how do we want the players to feel when uh, in this loop. And so it's all about, okay, I'm incognito, I will do things that will attract guards' attention. Um, but for example, it's, it's one of the first design decision is, okay, am I, I mean, are the guards r uh, after me, right after seeing me? So is it automatic? Do I need to hide uh, all the time mm -hmm. or not? And yeah. this is very important because yeah. it gives you the freedom to r just free roam uh, peacefully or not, right? Mm. And so Assassin's Creed was also about, and you were talking about the gentle push, it was also s about saying that you don't necessarily have to fight first. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to be detected and attacked by guards as soon as you show up. Yeah. You, you do nothing, you're just here and you're attacked. You, so okay. that's the line between being engaging and frustrating. Right? <laughs> yeah, and, exactly. that, and uh, we've all played stealth games where that line isn't in the right spot and you're like, ah, screw this. Like I've, I've had bad experiences with a lot of stealth games. Exactly, so, so that's the first thing you need to decide. And so you say, okay, we don't want it to be binary. It's off or on. So we need a detection loop, something that goes from I'm incognito to I mean, the shit, <laughs> because guards are after me, right? And so how does that work? How do, how do we make that credible, uh, fun to play yeah. with? And so it's about, okay, we, there will be this, um, this moment where they see you, and so, uh, but they're not sure yet. They start to investigate after you, and this gives you enough time maybe to realize that you are going into trouble, and so to change your mind, go somewhere else, do something that could cool down the situation. But if you do nothing, or if you continue to do actually uh, reprehensible actions, <laughs> <laughs> then they, they, they close the loop, and they're after you. Right. And so all this afterwards, you, you need to say, okay, how do we communicate that to the player? Yeah. Because this is the logic of the sequence, okay? So programmers are into it, animators also. But then we need the feedback. We need players to actually understand what's going on under the hood. And this is another topic. So how do you how do you go about 
figuring out the answers to all those questions, right? Like Ron said, are you playing hide and seek? Are you prototyping? Are you doing rough exactly. outlines? Yeah, are this you is it. So hide and seek was, okay, is it credible if I sh just show up in front of you, you know, and then how do you, what is the, the, the <laughs> what could be considered as a, as a normal line of sight before they actually see you? Oh, so are you literally in you your strip? office, like popping around, yeah. going like, "Okay, I'm ten it, feet away. Can you? Do you feel like you see me? Yeah. Am I over here? Like, <laughs> exactly. No, but seriously, wow. I mean, you, you can. <laughs> when you, <laughs> that's the beauty of uh, of uh, designing things. It's. I'm sitting on the roof of the building. Do you <laughs> see me? <laughs> I know. Well, the thing you always do in those games is they're chasing you. My first reaction is always to climb to the top of the building. Mm -hmm. Ah, they can't find me now, but then those motherfuckers climb up and they come get you. So are you like running around the exactly. roof of the Ubisoft <laughs> campus and no. like jumping off of shit? No. We didn't go that far. <laughs> okay. No. no, but that's the beauty of designing thing. I mean, you whatever it takes for you to understand and, and, and come up with the good ideas, well, just do it. So basically, you do the, your tools <laughs> as, uh, along the way. And do you do you create like, uh, or do you create like little prototype game games to like play around in? And how? It, it, this is my main question. How do you figure out whether or not it's fun? Are you literally testing a game prototype and saying, "Are we having fun? How much fun am I having? One to ten? We do. I yeah. Mean, but yeah, I mean, at some point, you you just do a first iteration. Yeah. You have an intention, you design something, you programmed it, uh, everybody's on board, let's test it. So you test it on your own, and then when you feel it's good enough, then you think it's good enough, and then you put it into players' hands. <laughs> yeah. And then it's another story, <laughs> because they don't know what you want to do in the first place, so they, are, they don't have this bias, yeah. bias right? Uh, because you are always uh, very self-indulgent with your own creation. Yeah, <laughs> this is why we need to test it with people that don't know the game in the first place. Yeah, to see in actual situation, real situation, do they get it? I mean, is it clear enough? Yes, no. Is it frustrating? Can I ask a question? Sure. Anytime. Was there anything where um, player feedback from someone who who was outside of the team really changed a design decision, something that you were thinking about, and you're like, oh, wait, they're playing it in a different way, and it opened your mind to a d new thing? Did that ever happen? It always uh, helps uh, refine and, and um, improve. Uh, radically changing the design, not really, I would say. But I remember uh, Assassin's Creed 2, uh, namely, uh, we had this the, the loop, and you were saying about running, climbing, you know, into the rooftops in order to, uh, to escape or yeah. to hide. This is exactly the loop we wanted you to do. <laughs> okay. Exactly. I was following you fell for it. Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> well, ideally, I would, right? I mean, it's, but, yeah. But it's, yeah, it's uh, because this is the most fun. Basically, we, we identified, uh, when I was saying about identifying our strengths and weaknesses from AC1, we identified our three main gameplay pillars, who were the stealth, the fight mm. and the parkour. Okay. Right? And so this game is never as fun as when you're actually running from rooftops to rooftops. Mm -hmm. So we wanted you to experience that. And so at some point we were doing running playtest. And so we were, we were seeing with heat map, you know we, what heat maps, so we have the tracking of all the, the path. You're tracking where players go and then you're looking at where they go most often. Yes. And what appeared was that 
when players were actually in conflict, chased by guards, they were staying at ground level. Mm. And so they were not actually enjoying the rooftops uh, and the climbing thing. And so we managed to, uh, to change the beat, to tweak the things, to, to place uh, more uh, uh, enticers to, to, to have you climb in order to escape, and then having fun in your, on the rooftops. And, and then uh, a month after, once the changes were implemented, we saw the difference, and the appreciation of, of these missions were actually uh, way better. So we knew that was working. And where, oh, this is such a dumb question, but where do you find the people who are gonna test this for you? Are you just grabbing people from the streets of Montreal and putting the game in their hands? <laughs> we we have a <laughs> <laughs> you can apply. I mean, we we have the QC department, you yeah, the so quality control department, and it's there is all there are always were looking for people that yeah. uh, would like to test games uh, before their release. So obviously, you will have to sign, you know, a non-disclosure agreement. Yeah, uh, that's for sure. Uh, we don't like leaks, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's feasible, especially here in Montreal. So. Uh, before we move on to talk about like the rest of the games, um, are there what are the challenges of doing that kind of creative work on such a big team? Because like I, you know, uh, me and Ron both are you know creative. We're, we're in the creative business too. But in stand up, you work by yourself. On TV, you work in small teams. Indie games are small teams. But having when you've got 150 or 700 people working on a game, and you need the structure that those people are in to create that creativity. I'm sure there are times where it feels like that's getting in the way of the creative work. How does that, how does that balance? Well, it's, a, it's one of the challenges we, we face when uh, making big games. It's at the same time, you know, it's a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. It's uh, super powerful to have so many talented people, you know, and experienced people. But at the same time, yes, the coordination of these, uh, all these talents and efforts into the making one thing yeah is is the the main challenge and that's what as a creative director i find the the most interesting and the most challenging is to set up one vision for everybody so that they can push in the same direction right and so uh, i'm uh, basically as a big project like that at least at ubisoft are uh, managed by at the at the head of the the project you have two people you have the creative director who's in charge of the entire content so the user experience, mm -hmm. you know, the global experience, and you have the producer who's in charge of budgets, timelines, uh, resources, uh, the team, uh, team organization. That actually sounds a lot like, that actually sounds a lot like TV, uh, mm -hmm. where a lot of times you have one producer who's creative, head of creative, and another person who's head of production and managing, make sure everything runs on time. And so from, from that uh, top structure, you, you have a, a we actually mimic this structure uh, all down to the teams so that we have then uh, uh, big chunks of the game that are, you know, uh, divided. Mm -hmm. and, and so you have the world team, for example, the mission team, uh, the AI team, etc. And so in all these teams, you have the creative, you have the, the guys that are actually making the content and the managers that make sure we have enough people, uh, we deliver on time, etc. But you must have... 
how do you negotiate a problem where you know the mission team says, okay, this mission is not fun. We need to scrap. We tested it. Nobody likes it. The mission where they go to this special area, but then the world design team is like, we already we spent all our time making the fucking winery or whatever, and we don't have time to make a new whatever level it is. Like that's uh, when you have those big teams working in parallel, and each of them can only imagine how many dozens of people are under each of those teams. That's such a such a beast to manage. Communication. <laughs> it's like in a couple. Yeah. <laughs> right. Communication uh, is is the key, and uh, and so having also multidisciplinary teams help. So, for example, uh, with the origins, the way we were structured at the end was really uh, region-based. Mm. So we had big chunks of the world uh, uh, that were developed by big teams, I would mm -hmm. say, but uh, that were composed of world people, mission people, you know, and and so with the writers embedded into that, so that the the the, the making of one region would uh, make sense, yeah, and and bring. Uh, Consistent, uh, a consistent experience with a cohesive, you know, the, these quests actually uh, belong to this area. And so this works quite well. And do you feel when you are creative directing, you creative directed some of the later games, mm -hmm. um, and so you were that top creative role on the whole game, no, uh, on yes. Black Flag and a couple Black of Flag and Origins. And yes. Origins. So how much did you try to say, hey, here's my vision for what the game is, here's what I'm trying to accomplish, and then try to filter that through the rest of the process? Is that, do you think of it in that way or no? Well, I see my role as, um, so like I, like I was saying, my role is to make sure that everybody works in the same direction. Mm -hmm. So in the first place, I really need to explain them what we want to do and why we want to do it that way. Right, and once people got the idea, and, and especially the why behind, then they can express themselves and bring to the table. Because I mean, I, I won't come. I'm not the one coming with all the ideas with, uh, for such a big games. It's not possible. I yeah, need, I need to have everybody on board. Yeah, and all together we will uh, deliver that game. Yeah, and so a lot of things came up by a lot of people on the team. Right. And so, but as long as it fits within the global framework, mm -hmm. uh, I said, I have no problem. Yeah, go go ahead. What I'm telling them is that you c anybody on the on the on the floor can come to me and propose an idea. Yeah, I mean anybody, programmer. I mean even tester. What I mean, there's no. I mean, good ideas can come from everywhere. Right? Yeah. My role is to try to select the ones that make the most, the most sense mm -hmm. for the experience and try to make it happen. Uh, what I don't want is people that come to me and say, hey, I have an idea. And when I ask, why does that make sense? They say, oh, because it's cool. <laughs> well, that's a, maybe that's a, a good starting answer. point. <laughs> I want it to be cool at the end, right? <laughs> but because it's cool is not uh, a solid argument. Well, there needs to be a it's why is it cool. You need to know yes. why it's cool. Well, that's the great, I mean, that's the, of any creative. It's like, not just like, like when we're writing jokes, it isn't just, oh, I'm telling random jokes. It's like, how does this fit into the framework of the story we're telling? Exactly. Yeah. That's the same. I mean, you, I mean, I think you, you would agree that, I mean, having ideas is not the, the most difficult part. I mean, we just, okay, we, we could do it now. I mean, we're having good Let's time. Let's make a game! Right? <laughs> We're having good time. We could fill this entire room of post-its of, of ideas, right? Yeah. 
but they won't make sense or you know it's, it, there's no the I like this uh, notion of framework you you brought and so it it needs to fit in and if it does then let's do it yeah that for example on uh, on black flag stitchantis mm -hmm. came exactly that way we had the audio director who was looking for musics and mm -hmm. songs because i mean sailors and pirates were actually singing and chanting a lot yeah so and he was researching that with our lead writer, Darby McDavid. And these two, at some point, realized, wow, these songs are awesome. <laughs> we need to use them more than just having ambient sound, you know? Yeah. How, do we, how can we give them more room? Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, makes sense. It has a good idea. And one of my uh, key, uh, one of my main uh, focus on Black Flag was to make sure the team was creating one game. Mm. One pirate game, not an Assassin's Creed game on ground, and a pirate game at sea. Yeah. Right. So I was really pushing the team to unify the two with the uh, uh, seamless transitions, you know, from the ship to mm -hmm. the ground, and with mechanics also that would promote ground gameplay, but from the sea and vice versa. And at the same time, we had the design team that was actually trying to reuse the Benjamin Franklin Almanac from AC3. You could, uh, there was this collectible thing where you would catch flying pages yeah. of Benjamin Franklin's Almanac, you know. Because just they had bad book glue back then and the pages just flew away. Correct. Oh no, yeah. my pages of my Almanac. Oh, window open. But it was cool. <laughs> it was cool because... <laughs> It was actually based on uh, using one of the three pillars, which was the parkour, right? Yeah. So making parkour shine. So this why, this is why this activity was here in the first place in AC3. Mm -hmm. And when uh, developing Black Flag, we, was, we were trying to reuse as much as possible to, to bring the more variety of the game. And so design team was, what do we do with that? And then the idea from everybody came and said, okay, these sea shanties are these pages. Mm. And so on ground, you would collect these uh, songs mm -hmm. that would become your radio pirate, you know? <laughs> pirate radio, one, what's, uh, <laughs> once on your ship. <laughs> and so this is exactly uh, how this uh, emerged. That's such I a cool that. idea. And you're right that the execution is, the most, is more important than the idea itself. <laughs> Before you came on, Ron had a wonderful, funny rant about the WWE games and how that yearly release cycle can like kill creativity. And I don't know if Assassin's Creed is that often, but I know you know, for instance, the Far Cry games are are practically yearly, right? They're, or they're very there's a very quick two, cycle. Two, yeah, two, two years, years, I think. Yeah, yeah. well, I, they certainly there's the TikTok cycle, right? Um, and I know that that sort of those business pressures of we need this game to come out in this year so that we can hit those numbers can, you know, that can come into conflict, into conflict with creativity. How does that impact your, the creative process and how do you negotiate that? Well, I think it's, uh, it's an interesting uh, uh, pressure. I mean, the, the, the blank page is always a big uh, danger also. Uh, and so having a clear uh, uh, deadline 
forces you to be creative also mm. uh, and uh, not only in, ter in terms of new things but also in uh, reusing like uh, like i was saying in a, as long as it is in a meaningful way i think there is no uh, problem with that and uh, with assassin's creed which is the the game i know i, I know the most um, the cool thing is that we can travel in uh, many different uh, time periods so whatever i mean even if games were coming every year we were first uh, at some point we had three teams in parallel so uh, it's not uh, we are doing a game in one year and 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 we redo another one after mm -hmm. so we had two years or three years long cycle with different teams that would not suffer from this you know repetition thing mm -hmm. and when you add to that the fact that we were uh, exploring different time periods then it makes the entire uh, work really different because the context is different, the, the historical people are different, the stories you, you might tell are different, and some mechanics, uh, gameplay mechanics, need to be different to properly uh, um, depict the time period. Yeah. So we are making that evolving also. So that's... Uh, well, a related issue that I would feel remiss if I didn't ask you about is there's a lot of conversation in the games industry right now about, about work issues, overwork, crunch issues, things like that. Um, I'm sure that, you know, uh, being part of a big team, those sort of issues come up. How do you deal on a personal level, you know, with the sort of hours required? And as a team manager, how do you think about those issues? I think it's a, it's a serious one that we're taking very seriously. And uh, when I see the evolution of uh, uh, the way we're working for mm -hmm. uh, for more than 10 years now, uh, at least here in Montreal, it uh, it progresses a lot. I mean, we are uh, taking that very seriously and we really try to uh, accommodate as much as we can. And this is why also the Ubisoft group in general uh, has expanded so that we have uh, support teams, you know, and, and co-development teams on many other studios. So we are not just, uh, there's not only one team in charge of one game anymore. Yeah. So that we can really split and, uh, and uh, spread the work and the workload also. So it remains, I mean, making video games is challenging. Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, uh, being an indie, being a big AAA thing, it is challenging. Yeah. Uh, there's no question about that. We don't necessarily share this, the exact same <laughs> challenges, <laughs> but um, but as long as you you know why, I mean, what you what you're doing, why you want to do it, and and you try to respect the people you're working with, yeah, it's going well. Ron, Thank I want to make sure you have a chance to ask any questions you may have. Sure. I mean, mostly I want to say um, that Black Flag and Origins are two of my favorite of the Assassin's Creed series. So I, I appreciate the work you did. Uh, my favorite of all is Syndicate, though. I love Syndicate. I think it's one of the most underrated Assassin's Creed games. Well, not just an, an underrated game. To me, it's one of the best Batman-style games ever <laughs> created. And it was the last crush I had. Evie Fry is amazing and wonderful. So I wonder, how did you guys make Evie so great and then Jacob a fucking door? <laughs> But this is a kind of true fan question that this podcast needs. So <laughs> first, I need uh, I want to thank you for uh, for your good words for Black Flag and Origins. Sadly, I mean I didn't really work on Syndicate because this was the Quebec studio who brought uh, uh, Odyssey uh, also last year. Got it. Um, so I was not into the secret of uh, you know in the kitchen of, of Syndicate, but I I do admit that uh, Evie is some somebody. Yeah. Yeah, really, Evie's really the nice. best. You let them know more Evie, Jacob, never again. <laughs> 
but they're twins, right? So I'm it's trying hard to not having them. played this game. I'm trying to imagine why you hate Jacob so much. He's just boring. And he's a nerd. <laughs> he's a dork. And Evie's a someone like, in the crowd just shouted out, "He sucks." He does suck. <laughs> he sucks so much. And Evie is so fierce and so wonderful, and she's like, so intelligent, and she's like a bare knuckle boxer, and she's the best. Well, I don't want to cause a political problem for Jean here because maybe some of his colleagues care a lot about Jacob. No one cares about (laughs) Jacob. I'm sure, yes. I'm sure some do, some do. But their their dynamic is interesting. My question, I guess my last question would be, is like, when you guys going to get those rabbits under control? They're crazy. The rabbits? Yeah. Raving rabbits? They're always doing stuff. (laughs) They're good. But they're, they're made in France. Okay, I hope they calm down. Maybe, yeah, 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 maybe why not? <laughs> well, so you haven't, uh, you, you, you did not work on uh, the most recent Assassin's Creed game. You seem no. to be transitioning a little bit. What is, what is next for, for you? Uh, uh, having worked on these games for 10 years now, yeah, yeah how, how, what does that sort of long-term career look like and what's next? Well, I don't know exactly what the future is uh, having for me, but yeah, after 11 uh, and a half years, on Assassin's Creed, I, I really uh, finished it uh, last year, basically. So now I'm uh, transitioning to something else. Some, uh, something else. Tell us. Uh, Tell us. What is it? <laughs> yeah. So it will be about. <laughs> uh, I'm afraid it's not the right place. That text the right adventures. Moment to do it. But text um, <laughs> yeah. That's what I want. This is pretty much the same amount of people as E3 now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe in some years. <laughs> but um, no, I, I feel so. Uh, I mean, so uh, I'm so grateful to have uh, been able to work uh, for so long on this uh, amazing franchise, to have been part of it, and now yeah, for uh, after releasing the Discovery Tour, who, who was really my uh, my dear uh, personal project, I thought that this franchise only could bring that type of experience to people. So mm-hmm. for those of you who don't know, Discovery Tour is the educative mode based on Origins. So it's yeah. really uh, giving access to the entire world we carefully recreated, but with uh, 75 tours, like if you were in a, into a museum. So it's really about learning about... This is one of the history. coolest things the Assassin's Creed games have done, yeah. where there's the educational specific mode, because that really shows what games are capable of apart Absolutely. from what we normally think of. Them. Exactly, and so I'm, I'm super happy because there is the, this uh, new edition coming, so the one based on Odyssey, will be released uh, in September. Cool. And so, yeah, uh, I feel uh, super proud also of uh, delivering that. And now since then, uh, since last year, I'm uh, doing something else. What do you, you don't have to tell us what your next thing is, if whether you know or not. Well, but as a, let, let's end on this note, because I want to know about you personally, as a creator, having gotten your self-actualization out, working on this franchise you love and accomplishing all of your dreams on it, mm-hmm. what what do you want your next project to feel like? What are you looking for to get out of it personally? What else do you want to do? Well, I think you, you touched on it, is that to continue to show that video games can bring uh, much more than just, in brackets, fun. Yeah. Um, it is a very, very strong medium. The interactivity is something very, very powerful that can change people's life. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think we can, through gameplay, through interactive experiences, and especially when it's uh, with friends, uh, be uh, moving, you know, and and, uh, and changing. And I think we can carry on some values 
um, that are interesting. So, yeah, I cannot say more. <laughs> uh, say a yeah. little more. Uh, <laughs> more. Just a little more. <laughs> no, no, I, I, want, I want to work on positivity, basically. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming here today to talk to us about it. And thank you, Ron, as well, for coming. Thank you so much, man. Thank you all for being here. Uh, Yeah, thanks so much. Bye. Thank you once again to both our guests for coming on the show. I hope you love that conversation as much as I did. That is it for us this week on Humans Who Make Games. We'll be back next week. Please give us a rating wherever you subscribe. It helps us out a lot. And until next week, keep playing. Podcast Network.